Hello, welcome to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at the HFMA. In today's episode, we're focusing on health inequalities and the role that the finance function can play in working to address them. I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Bola Owalabi, Director for Health Inequalities at NHS England and NHS Improvement, Hannah Whitty, Chief Financial Officer at Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust, and Duncan Orme, Acting Chief Financial Officer at Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. So welcome everyone. Thank you very much for taking part today to share your thoughts. And I just thought before we get into the detail of talking about finance, Bola, perhaps you could start us off by giving us a bit of an overview of health inequalities and the work that's going on nationally in this area. Thank you, Sarah. Um, It's great to join you um, on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. Um, So I think it's probably worth starting by agreeing a position in terms of what we mean by health inequalities. And I find the King's Fund's definition most useful particularly because it conveys a sense of hope and it conveys the powerful fact that health inequalities are not inevitable. So the King's Fund defines health inequalities as avoidable and unfair differences in health outcomes um, within and between different groups and communities. And I think that definition is a great place to start. And so building on that then, we've set out a clear vision as NHS England and improvement in tackling health inequalities. And it's a vision that has its power in the fact that it's been co-produced with loads and loads of people right across the country. And the vision is exceptional quality healthcare for all. That includes people at the margins of our communities. And it's by ensuring three things, equitable access, excellent experience and optimal outcomes. And of course, those three things are a direct function of the NHS as a commissioner and provider of services. And that equitable access, excellent experience, optimal outcomes is in our purview as an organization, including our finance functions. So I look forward to the conversation today. Thank you, Bola. That was really helpful. Um, It would be useful to bring in our our finance colleagues now, and perhaps we'll start with with Duncan. Why are you interested in health inequalities? As as a Chief Financial Officer, what's driving you to be involved with this conversation? Well, to be honest, Sarah, I, I think my first introduction to this was hearing Bola. I, I had a general awareness of it, but uh, I, I had the good fortune of meeting Bola on uh, on one of the healthcare costing for value institute sessions uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and that conversation really uh, took me from being a, a concerned citizen to actually applying some of my professionalism to this, and I started taking a look around at, uh, at what Bola had educated me a bit on. Uh, and I, I started speaking to my colleagues in finance uh, and importantly in the health analyst community. And I found there were there were basically two responses. Um, the first response, which came from almost everyone, was we've not done sufficient in this. We don't know enough about the baseline. We it, we're not measuring this well enough. 
And because we're not measuring it well enough, we don't properly understand it. And because we don't properly understand it, we're not acting to do something about this inequality that I think so many people can just see with their own eyes. And then I dug a bit deeper and I found one or two experts. Um, it's this lovely lady called Irene, who's, who's joined us in, uh, in our ICS, uh, and she's secured herself a post, a post as being a, a principal analyst within the Nottinghamshire ICS, looking specifically at this subject. Uh, and wow, there is hard evidence out there. Yeah. Uh, and we might come into some of that in, in a little while to so, see some of that hard evidence about how inequalities are playing into impacting on people's lives. And exactly as Bola was saying, that inequality issue uh, is coming to the fore. But also, it generates waste. Uh, and so many of the problems that the NHS is seeing at its front door at the moment, our ED departments are at the beginning of winter, but by goodness me, it doesn't feel like the beginning of winter. It feels like we're right stuck in slap bang in the worst winter we've ever had. And that waste is being contributed to because we're not treating people equally, as Bola described. Yes. Yeah, so, so can I come in here? Um, and Duncan, I absolutely agree with it with what you've said. Now, I work in a community, a mental health trust, so probably a slightly different lens on this. Um, but like you, I think I've been on a journey with my understanding of the impact of inequalities. Um, and if if I if I look at the question um, about why is a chief finance officer would buy, would I be interested in this? I think I could give you the finance perspective that says um, so much of, of of what we see in our in our front doors, really, so much of the pressure on the system could have been dealt with earlier by engagement with communities around their needs, um, by why people find that our service is hard to reach. Um, and as a result of that, by the time they arrive in our services, often their needs are greater. And, and from a purely finance perspective, um, more money is then needed to treat um, the people who are in our hospitals and in our, in our care. But I think particularly working in a community and mental health trust and, and one that's been involved with the Grenfell community and the, the Brent community over COVID, where we have um, specific neighbourhoods where um, disproportionate um, people or disproportionate amounts of people were suffering from COVID and dying from COVID at the start of the pandemic. Um, I've really become aware through the work that we've done with those communities and um, working with a reverse mentor, trying to read more of the King's Fund literature, sort of trying to follow Bola in this space, about understanding why there are um, disproportionate impacts and how this, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking really that it's it's driven by geography, it's driven by socioeconomic circumstances, um, it's driven by your characteristics. Um, and I really think that, that it is beholden on all of us in the NHS to be engaging with communities to understand their needs, to understand how they need to access our services and to reach out and ensure that we make them accessible um, in, at an early stage. 
um, so we can avoid so much of, of what is ultimately preventable and is really impacting on um, life expectancy and healthy life expectancy. And, uh, you know, it's just really interesting listening to both of your reflections there. And uh, just, just to come back in on the point you've both raised in terms of the waste conversation, um, not just in terms of finance, but in terms of people's lives. Um, and I, I reflect on the British Red Cross report that was published last week showing that 1% of the population is accounting for 29% of our ambulance conveyances, 26% of our emergency admissions, 16% of our A&E attendances, 1% of the population. And if you disaggregate that 1%, it's made up in the main of the 20% most deprived communities. And so it's not only an ethical and a moral argument, there is a productivity conversation in there as well. Because as you said, with the ambulances queuing up at the front of our hospitals, I think that discovery that that pressure a substantial proportion of it is attributable to a tiny sliver of the wider population. I think if we're not convinced on a moral or ethical basis, surely that data that I've just shared is compelling enough from a productivity point of view um, to make some inroads in this space, certainly. Bola, I wonder if I could uh if I could pick up the narrative now and, and, and say that national view, I think when you start looking at it locally, it is repeated locally, uh, perhaps looking at slightly different stats, but it's the same underlying problem. Uh, as I said uh, earlier on, I had the opportunity to, to speak to some of our subject matter experts on this. And it came sadly as not as a surprise to me, but our analysts can correlate the location where people are coming from to present in our ED department and correlate that to ongoing care for urology and cardiology, for instance. And whereas from different localities, better served, perhaps more fortunate areas, localities, boroughs, groupings from within our population, you can see the normal pathway of care of patients accessing urology services and cardiology services throughout patient clinics and referrals through our GP. Sadly, for those more deprived areas, it is becoming increasingly clear that those referrals are coming through our A&E department. Mm -hmm. and, and most alarmingly of all is when they eventually get that care, their outcomes are not as good. And, and the thing that uh, our, our analysts and those who are looking at this in, in greater detail, uh, uh, and I'm sure Hannah must see this through her services, this isn't a single event. Yeah. This outcome, this waste of people's 
opportunities of their life opportunities, this waste of our staff's ability to care for these patients builds up over years from their from their birth into uh, a lifestyle or a, a, a group or a community which doesn't give them the access that other other groups are getting. So there must be something we can do about this. And I think could I could I come in there because I, I think that the um, the move to collaboration through integrated care systems, I, I think that gives us a fantastic opportunity in this space. And, and this isn't just across the NHS. It's it's you know, it's it's with all of our partners in this space, be they local authorities, the voluntary sector, um, because there are Obviously, if, if we're in starting to engage with this at source, um, it is much more than about health. It's about housing. It's about education. But I do think that the the new legislation um, gives us an ability um, to be able to work together to reach into communities to understand these needs, as I've said. And and for me, I think it's it's powerful at system level. Um, but I think it's potentially more powerful at place and at neighbourhood level if we can get those relationships and those building blocks right. Um, and thinking, Bela, about the, the statistics you just gave, um, we've been involved in a piece of work in Hillingdon at the moment around what's termed our high intensity users with very similar statistics around the proportions of the population that are um, using that are requiring ambulances coming into our emergency departments using our community services um, and what we've done there we, we've had a, a place-based partnership running for a while where we've been working with um, the GP confederation which includes most of the PCNs in that area we've been working with the voluntary sector we've been working with the local authority and collectively we've pulled our resources um, to invest in um, uh, care coordinators um, and people to work more directly with these um, very high need users and patients um, to look at all the points that they're accessing care and whether we can put something better, whether we can wrap a better care package around them. Um, in order to meet their needs um, and what we've seen from that it's been it's it's you know for, for a cost of around 130,000 a year which we do share across the partnership um, we have seen a 43% reduction in A&E attendances and a 62% reduction in hospital admissions it's really quite a powerful piece of work for me and it's it does require a lot of time and a lot of energy um, to do this, um, but the power I think comes in in that in that collaboration in healthcare professionals in housing professionals working together um, to address this at source. And you know, if I was to come in, um, if I may, and reflecting on yours and Duncan's um, reflections there, I think there's something about the cost of doing nothing. You know, if you if, if if we think about the role of directors of finance and leaders of finance in this space, that 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 there's something about the data, as we've been saying, there's something about disaggregating the data 
in a way that surfaces the disparities. And it's when we've done that first step, then there is something about understanding value from the point of view of the customer, which is the first principle in quality improvement. And actually, somebody who is repeatedly turning up in A&E, value from their point of view is not the being patched up in each episode of care. Value is about that multi-agency coordinated support and intervention that you've so eloquently described, Hannah. And I think from that then stems the cost of doing nothing argument. So for the investment that you've just described, the return on investment, the, you know, inherent in the statistics that you've just talked us through, I think is incredibly powerful. Because sometimes when we have the conversation about that partnership working, that investment in the upstream interventions that really make a difference in terms of accessibility to our services, sometimes the pushback is, ah, but that is going to cost us. You know, and I think your example, what Duncan was saying earlier on, is perhaps a great question to be putting into those rooms to say, but what is the cost of doing nothing? So that we can stack that against the seemingly significant cost, which in reality is actually modest when stacked up against the potential returns, uh, would, would be a very interesting way of driving the conversation forward. And Hannah, just out of interest, mm. did you have any problems with trying to get that investment through your your approvals process um no i didn't but i have to say it was my my predecessor in this space hardev verdi who who had done the legwork on establishing um what is effectively a risk and gain share arrangement across the partners in um in hillingdon who work together as a as an icp as a place um so the finance agreements are in place um, they are monitored um, and as a result of us understanding um, the framework that we're working in and, and collectively signing up to sharing the benefits as, as, as well as the risk because as Bola said that the cost of, of doing nothing I think will I mean that it, there is a high cost of doing nothing in these areas and we can't continue to work in this way. Um, so the infrastructure was there, but I think for me it's been very powerful in terms of I would want to take that and replicate it across the piece. Um, because if you look at it, and there are, it's not quite equal shares according to the size of the organisation, but 130,000 per annum is is quite small for the impact we've had. And obviously I've pulled this one out as one of the more powerful programs that I've been involved in, one that's had a higher return on investment. But I absolutely think that there's a key role for finance professionals here, um, not just in, in, in the costing side of things, understanding the cost of doing nothing, understanding the investment that's needed and the return on investment that that might bring into a into a place, into a system. Um, but I also think, Bola, to pick up on your point about the data, I really do think that finance professionals have a, a role here as well, because there are 
um, many data sets that we need to consider in this area, such as the index of multiple deprivations, and they sit across a number of our agencies. But but what I found is, you know, there's quite often the skills and expertise and capabilities exists in finance department to work with this data um, and to overlay the financial position to come up with some quite strong recommendations. And I think that and bringing in um, business intelligence information colleagues um, and, and performance analytics, I think finance have, have something that they can definitely bring to the table in this space as well. Duncan, you came to this from through the Healthcare Costing for Value Institute. That's which your first introduction to Ebola. So picking up on what, what Hannah said, what role do do your costing teams have, have in this in terms of supporting the work to tackle health inequalities? I think, Sarah, uh, the role of the costing teams really is to shine that light on the point that Bola made earlier in our conversation. That the cost of doing nothing is just not a tenable solution. The cost of not investing is showing in the lists of people who are waiting to access cancer services because we can't make the beds available, because we're not delivering the right care to all of our population. I, I think that Red Cross data that, uh, that Bola described, a lot of that is replicated locally uh, and has come out of uh, local analysis. And, and a costing team has an ability and a skill set to support that. A costing team is used to dealing with high volumes of data. Costing team knows how to be respectful of an individual's privacy and work within the law, the GDPR, when working with high volumes of data but still able to pull out those crucial lessons that both Hannah and Bola have pointed to. It is a feature of so many of my conversations with the Costing for Value Institute, that cost accountants don't want to spend their lives filling in the paper returns or the e-returns just to send up to the center. They want to get involved in solving the problem. And goodness me, they have the skills to help develop those local dashboards to see that cost. And working with analyst colleagues, you can start seeing, uh, as we are in, uh, uh, in the Northamptonshire healthcare system, that DNA rates at outpatient clinics are higher in some localities than others. Uh, and hardly surprisingly, those localities are amongst the most deprived. And most patients deteriorate and they have personal prices that they pay with that deterioration, which we all reflect on. But that deterioration has an impact not just on them and their family and their loved ones. It has an impact on the carers who are trying to care for them and have to intervene at a later stage and use more of their time, more of their resources to do their very best for the patient. And in doing that, we're taking more beds and we're taking more time. And those patients who are desperately trying to access our services are not getting that access because we are dealing with people too late in arguably uh, a way which is causing more waste than it would have been had we dealt with them earlier. 
had we managed to communicate better with that patient population, had we managed to find ways to uh, encourage people to present about their concerns and get them seen by the right healthcare professional. I am mindful that this is a rich, rich area. The Treasury uh, has, uh, in its discussions with the DH, secured significant additional resources coming into healthcare in the coming three years. We all know that there aren't the significant numbers of healthcare professionals to be recruited out there at the moment. We face real workforce challenges. So finding better, smarter ways of working, finding better ways of working with these patients is surely the easier answer and the better way of, of, of using these resources that Treasury is providing. And I think some of the, the tools of looking at the problem and understanding it will lead us to that to those answers. And hence, I, I'm fully in support of investments in these areas. When you talked about the intervention at a later point in the pathway, I was just reflecting on the fact that at the moment, 24% of the cancers being diagnosed at stage four, which is advanced stage, is in people in the 20% most deprived communities. So it costs the system because it's a late diagnosis. And so you, you need to bring out bigger, far more expensive interventions at that point with less likelihood of success in, from a personal cost point of view. And so there is a question that says, why are we seeing 24% of stage four cancer diagnoses in our 20% most deprived communities? What is happening further upstream? That means people are turning up so late in the day. And I think if you, you know, there are a number of other, you know, data points to think about if from a treatment cost, you know, the treatment cost of those late presentations and those late diagnoses, we know it's in the order of around five billion pounds of increased NHS cost. And then if you think about the productivity losses, you know, you're talking in the order of 31 to 33 billion pounds because of the loss due to illness, you know, ill health that is directly related to health inequalities. And some of the data tells us that the, the reduced tax revenue and the higher welfare payment is around 20 to 32 billion pounds. You, you kind of look at these numbers and they're huge, but actually the common theme running under all of them is this, that people from the most deprived areas have a lower life expectancy compared to those in the more affluent areas. But actually, they spend 19.6 years, nearly 20 years, extra in ill health. That's the healthy life expectancy gap between the least and the most deprived. And despite their lower life expectancy, per capita, the cost of health care for that most deprived population due to emergency admissions, due to the prevalence of long-term conditions, due to 
prolonged length of stay because it's harder to discharge into unstable social networks. All of that combined means that the shorter life expectancy is balanced by a higher cost of healthcare. And I, I, I just like to bring these, um, you know, into the conversation for those for whom it, 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 the, the numbers are important. And of course, for, for finance leads, numbers are important. And, and that's why I, I, I deliberately take time to talk through those data for, for, for colleagues who would be listening to this podcast to see the rationale in what you've just said there, Duncan, about but also to see the, the the benefit of the powerful example you gave, Hannah, about that risk and gain share arrangement across a system so that it's not the business or the problem of an individual provider, but actually we make the most of the integrated care system and the opportunities inherent within that um, would be my reflections. May I, may I just bring that point to to a bit of a fulcrum point that I think uh, Hannah was alighting on earlier on. You are describing, I think, most effectively for us here, that individuals in these deprived parts of our society, health-deprived parts of our society, begin a journey of poor health care at an early age. And that whilst there are clear examples in the acute sector, Hannah, of the cost of that popping out. The opportunity to solve this isn't just about ringing up the patient and trying to make no. sure they don't have their DNA. It's so much earlier in the services that, that you lead the financial governance for. Uh, uh, it's the acute services pick up the cost of this. And I think this ICS view, this system view, needs to really come to a, a come to a fore here, so we can start looking at that. Focus. I'd absolutely agree, and I, I think it was there's there's a bit of a question for Bola in here because in our learning in CNWL is that we have to focus on why these communities aren't accessing our services at every level. And in order to understand that, we need to be prepared to engage directly in the conversation with them. We found in CNWL that that can be quite powerful if you can find, identify influential figures in the local community, be they faith leaders, elders, um, but, but understanding the community and understanding who those respected figures are. And, and approaching them to do some shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder work or listening when they reach out to us in some cases and say, as they did in, in Church End in Brent, um, we need help. We need help in this community. And it's it's going in, I think, with some humility and listening and then redesigning the offer, redesigning the services that sit at that neighbourhood level um, Duncan, I think there is a definite role for acutes in here, but if we're going to get this right, my personal view is that it's at neighbourhood and place. And we need to 
understand why people aren't accessing our services, which, you know, in some cases there is a fear of institutions and we, we need to address this directly in collaboration with all parts of the system that, that can have an influence, that, that can mobilise around this. And it's through that engagement that we will, I think, perhaps start to see um, some of the um, horrendous figures that you relayed, Bola, will start to have an impact on some of that. But I'd be really interested in your views there because it it feels like we're at the foothills of a, a mountain here. Thank you, Hannah. And um, at the foothills, and yet I am filled with a sense of hope because at least we are naming the issue and starting to unpack the so what which I think is, uh, is is a really important point to have arrived in the conversation. So I will use a frame that I often speak to to answer the question that you've posed, which is, if we take the three quality improvement methodologies that I've been talking about and use them as a composite, the first is what we've talked about already, which is that whole thing about using data as a means for improvement rather than necessarily purely data as a basis for assurance because that is what most of us and our boards traditionally do a different relationship with data that actually says so what is the actionable insight that this data is giving us rather than necessarily data as an end in itself. And then secondly, building from that, is once we see the disparities inherent in the data, it's to take a strength-based stance, which doesn't assume that those communities are bags of needs, but to understand that there are strengths in those communities that we can tap into and build on as we did in the vaccine program. And you know, when we started to recognize the centrality of faith, the importance of community cohesion to the communities that were behind the curve in terms of the vaccines, it drove a set of interventions like putting the vaccines in places of worship, like ringing up the imams and the pastors and the Gujarwara leads, etc. And we saw the dial move in the right direction. So there's something about surface the disparities, assume an appreciative stance, and then co-produce with the communities. It's about not assuming that because we now have the data, we necessarily have the answers in the way that you've just described there. It's actually, I've, I've written down low cost, high coordination, high collaboration is the triad that will make a difference in these communities. Um, you know, and it's that co-production that will help us to see whether is the primary design of the service such that people can actually access it. The communication that surrounds it, is it culturally competent? And I think that humility that you talked about, Hannah, in terms of genuinely listening to the community in terms of what will work 
makes a massive difference. And actually, it's a cost-saving exercise in itself. Because what is the point of an expensive service that the people who need it don't access? So I think it's data for improvement, it's appreciative inquiry, and it is co-production and co-design with people and communities. Ultimately, I think that will give us some ways in. Thank you all so much for uh, for your thoughts and reflections today and, and just sharing sharing your time with us to, to talk about health inequalities and your experiences in your, your own organisations. I'm sure that's stimulated a lot of thoughts for everyone who's, who's listening and hopefully uh, made people want to go away and, and make a difference in their own organisations and, and hopefully they'll get some tips on how to do that from, from this discussion today. So thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you, you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with future episodes. 